I went to the best university in the state of Texas, perhaps the best university in the world, Texas A&M University. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Good. And I, there, when I was there, I studied um, biological and agricultural engineering. And I really enjoyed my time there. And there was, I think it was my junior year, I had a class on fluid mechanics. It was a riveting subject. And Dr. Gilly, who had been teaching for 40 years probably at that point, was the professor for that class. Dr. Gilly's class was right after lunch. And we used to go down to the Taco Bell or the Subway and grab ourselves a meal and then come back and try as hard as I might. I often dozed off in the middle of his lectures. One time I fell asleep in the middle of the class working on a problem. Right, so we're doing some fluid mechanics problem. I have no idea what it was. And when I came to a few minutes later, still in a bit of a stupor, I was convinced that a mistake had been made in the working of the problem. And I raised my hand and asked, uh, Dr. Gilly, don't we need to divide by 27 to go from cubic feet to cubic yards? And the kind professor replied, son, we're in the metric system, go back to sleep. <laughs> now, many lessons could be drawn from that experience, the first of which, as my friend in the class put it, will be humble. Don't try and raise your hand after you've been asleep. But more importantly, brothers and sisters, is this lesson. Because I was asleep, I wasn't able to see the problem correctly. I made a mistake. I missed some crucial aspect which should have informed my way of seeing, which should have informed my way of reasoning. I remember also in my first engineering class at A&M, them telling us, after you take this class, you'll never look at a bridge the same way again. And they're exactly right. To this day, when I pass by a bridge, I think which one of those members is a zero force member and which one of these, for the engineers in the room, you understand what I'm talking about. But it's true of all education. Anytime you become educated, anytime someone teaches you something, what they're really teaching you is a way of looking at the world. That's what true education is. It's teaching you how to think, how to look at the world. Education draws out of us a, a new way of seeing things, a way of seeing things differently. And the best education is that education which teaches us to see in accord with the way things actually are. Right? We call that truth when there's a concordance, an accordance between what's in my mind and what's in reality. That's called truth. We hear in the Gospel of Mark this morning Jesus' first words. These are the first words that Mark has him proclaiming. And it's good reason, or it's a, it's a good bet that they were probably the first words in his public ministry. 
He says, this is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Christ is saying to us, arise, O sleeper. Wake up. There's something happening here. Look differently because there's something to see. When Christ arrives, there's something new happening. There's something happening that not only allows you to see him, but to actually see reality as it really is. If we were to ask what Christianity is, what is Christianity? And you, and you were given only one word. I think the two words that you could put in that, and they're connected, are following and a worldview. Right? Christianity is a worldview. It's a way of looking at the world. And it's a way of looking at the world which is contingent upon us following Christ and seeing all things through him. We claim as Christians, brothers and sisters, that this worldview called Christianity, which is based on following, is the best way of seeing the world. It's the way, in other words, in which we're able to see what really is. To see things as they really are. To understand them, in other words. And at the heart of that claim of supremacy for the Christian worldview lies the person of Christ. Christ, the one through whom all things came into being, both gives things their proper meaning and reveals, he takes back the veil, as it were, that meaning to us. In him, the longed for, the union between God and humanity is accomplished. He is king and he is kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time for fulfillment is at hand when Christ is there. So the question becomes, brothers and sisters, how do we wake up or how do we not fall asleep? What keeps us from seeing well and how do we learn how to see better? That's the question. How do we learn how to see better? And Christ lays out a plan today in the gospel. He says, repent and believe. Christ is teaching you and I concretely how to see better. First, he tells us to repent. You know, in a sense, all true education involves a conversion. A, a change, a going beyond. The word repentance in our English lectionary comes from the Greek word metanoia. It's the translation of metanoia, which literally means to go beyond one's mind, to go past. Meta is like on top of, you think of metadata in a file. It's something that's not the file, but it's beyond the file. It tells you, gives you context about a file. And metanoia, noose means mind, right? So to go beyond 
the mind, to transcend the mind that you have now so that you can see the way things really are. Sometimes when we think of repentance, we think of like moral conversion. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it, moral conversion and moral living are essential to our conversion to Christ. They're essential to the metanoia which is supposed to take place in our hearts, in our lives. But they don't exhaust it. It's not just moral conversion. It's not just following the law. It's not just doing those things. At the heart of metanoia I mean, is opening one's mind and opening oneself to the reality that God can, does, and will work in ways that astound, confound, and obliterate our normal ways of seeing sometimes. Metanoia means recognizing that sometimes the way that you and I normally see will actually blind us to seeing reality as it actually is. You know, even the ancients, they recognized that this was a problem for humanity, not seeing, not being converted to see things in accord with reality. Plato, for example, in his famous cave analogy, which I encourage you to go read about if you get a chance, it's in the Republic, recognizes that those who are enslaved in the darkness of a cave, they believe that the shadows and images that they see are actually reality. That's their reality to them. The metaphor is based on the idea that there's people in a cave and they're enslaved and all they can see are shadows of things passing in front of a light. And because they've never seen anything else, when they're taken out of the cave and come into the bright light of day, it blinds them. It actually hurts them at first. They're not used to the brightness of reality because they think the shadows and images are reality. But that's not the case, right? The things seen in the broad light of day, the things illuminated, brothers and sisters, to continue the analogy, by Christ. This is what reality is. Not the shadows and images. The former prisoners, you and I, we must learn to see in accord with reality, which is illuminated and made clear by the person of Christ, rather than its pale reflection, which we have been enslaved to. Repentance, then, metanoia, involves that kind of drastic change. In Christ, we see differently. All things take on their true meaning. We're awakened to full life and to full seeing. But what keeps us from seeing, brothers and sisters, well in the first place? What are the change, to continue Plato's analogy, that keep us bound in the cave? What is the darkness in which we find ourselves without Christ? Bishop Robert Barron offers this simple analysis of the problem. He says, we see, we know, 
and we perceive with a mind of fear rather than a mind of trust. The Catechism of the Catholic Church speaks of this lack of trust as the cause of the original sin of Adam Adam and Eve in the garden. Man, tempted by the devil, it says, let his trust in his creator die. We let our trust die. And as a result, abusing freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of, and all subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God as a result of a lack of his of trust in his goodness. If you look at the Bible, brothers and sisters, over and over again you see that pattern played out. In our second reading, I'm sorry, in our first reading today from Jonah, isn't this exactly what's played out? We kind of skip over the unsettling parts of the book of Jonah today, but it's not very long, about three pages maybe in your Bible. Go read it. Jonah runs away from God because he doesn't trust that uh, God's grace is enough for him to convert the Ninevites. God brings him back. But we see this from the beginning. You see it in Adam and Eve. You see men and women acting with pusillanimous souls, small souls. And because of that, always meeting disaster. Cain fears he won't have enough, so he doesn't offer his best first fruits, and that leads him to envy the graces given to Abel, which leads him to murder. Abraham fears that God will not be faithful to his promise, and thus consents to become an adulterer. Jacob fears the wrath of his brother Esau, and so runs away. Moses fears the people. Aaron so desperately wants to be liked that he falls into idolatry. David, at the end of his life, fears battle. He fears death. And he fears ill repute. And so he eventually becomes an adulterer and a murderer. And those are all the people we hold up as pinnacles of faith in the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, this is our story as well. We fear things, and because of that we sin. Fearing loneliness and isolation, that God is not enough for us, many of us resign ourselves to lust. Fearing fearing comparison or fearing a lack, a loneliness, an isolation. Many become addicted to social media and to comparisons, to envy, to jealousy, to keeping up with the Joneses. Fearing dishonor, we hide our faith. We fear we won't have enough, and so we're not generous. Fear, rather than trusting, is at the heart of much of our sin. The good news is, brothers and sisters, that Christ gives us the antidote to breaking the bonds of fear in the second command that he gives today. Believe in the good news. 
he may as well say, believe in me, because he is the good news. He is the salvation which is longed for. The the opposite of a fearful, pusillanimous soul, a small soul, is the magnanimous soul, the soul who, trusting in God, sets out for true greatness. True greatness, which is only possible when man and woman recognize that they are loved completely by God. That God caused them to come to be and continues them in being. Believing in this context, brothers and sisters, which is the act of faith, is not so much assenting to a set of propositions as trusting in a person. We'll say the creed in just a second, and that's important. We need those propositions. We need those things. But we believe the things in the creed because we believe Jesus Christ, not the other way around. A person moves us to trust in a way that a proposition never could. Christ tells us to believe in him, to accept, therefore, the gospel, the good news. Brothers and sisters, time and time again in the gospel, whenever there's that type of trust, it's profoundly praised. Whenever someone comes to Christ with an attitude of trust, Christ heals them or the ones they love. For Christians, magnanimity and humility then are intimately connected with one another. We cry out to the Lord asking for what we need, but we do so boldly. Consider, for example, the story of the Roman centurion who goes to Christ and says, Lord, my son is dying. Consider his boldness to walk up to a Jewish rabbi, him a Roman. Or consider the lepers who came to Christ and said, Christ, Jesus, if you will it, you can heal me. And he says, I do will it. The stories abound. The woman caught in adultery, all of them. Every healing is as a result of people trusting in the Lord and coming to ask him in faith boldly. The words of the Roman soldier are repeated by us at every Mass we come to. Lord, I am not worthy that you should come into my roof, but only say the word. Think of the boldness of that statement. I'm not worthy, but say the word. I trust you. Think of the boldness also in the rest of the liturgy. The liturgy is teaching us how to be both magnanimous and humble at the same time, to trust, to believe in Christ in everything that we are. This is the greatest type of great soulness, the greatest type of magnanimity right here at this altar. To you, therefore, most merciful Father, Formed by divine teaching, we dare to say the words of the Our Father. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. This is greatness, right? 
This is Christ teaching us how to ask, not as a slave, not out of fear, but as a son, as a daughter, as one who trusts that he loves us. What greatness is this? What humility is this? Brothers and sisters, trust him. Repent and see the world differently. See the world the way it really is as a gift of God's love, the creation of a good God who loves you. See the world the way God sees the world.